Hi, food people. I'm Dawn Davis, the editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit. Occasionally, I'll be taking over the Food People podcast to have a conversation with some of the most prolific chefs, writers, entertainers, and advocates in the food world. Today, we're in for a real treat. I'm recording on Martha's Vineyard, and I'm sitting across from a true literary and culinary legend who also happens to be my island neighbor. I am, of course, talking about Dr. Jessica B. Harris, whose work covering the culinary influences of the African diaspora in America is some of the most important and insightful food scholarship today. Dr. Harris's books are full of personality and voice, which you'll hear in a minute, but just listen to these titles. Iron Pots and Wooden Spoons, which covers West African cuisine, or Sky Juice and Flying Fish, all about Caribbean cooking. She's a multiple-time James Beard Award winner, and I'm so honored to speak to her today. Dr. Jessica Harris, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Dawn. Goodness. Always look around, try to figure out who that person is. <laughs> I probably would like to meet her. So you're widely recognized as a food expert, and yet you didn't set out with the intention of food becoming a storytelling medium for you. So while I want to hear about your professional endeavors, I want to first hear about what you like to eat, where you eat, what you cook, when you cook, and some of the more intimate food stuff that we don't get to hear in other podcasts. <laughs> so you're trying to get my secrets. Well, I guess the earliest memories are home-related memories. My mother, who was actually a trained dietitian, I'm an only child, so if she was in the kitchen, I was in the kitchen. And um, as a trained dietitian, she certainly cooked according to all of the you know home economics, except she did it very, very, very well. And so I kind of learned at my mother's knee, if you will. I cooked with her until, well, until she wasn't cooking anymore. And I think the first memory, and she was probably baking a pie, and there was some pie crust left over. And I remember that red food coloring was involved. And so I played with it probably like I would play with anything else. And we put it in a little pie tin and put it in the oven with the pie crust. And when it came out, we looked at it. It was very, very pink. Mm. And uh, my mother, bless her heart, actually tasted it. And uh, it wasn't that bad. It was pie crust and sugar. <laughs> so we decided that it wasn't a cookie, it wasn't a pie, and it wasn't cake. So we called it Kupai Cake. Kupai Cake. I love that. Yeah. And when the first book came out, that would be Hot Stuff, a cookbook in praise of the piquant, I remember writing into the book. I always gave her the first book that I received, and I wrote in that one, we've come a long way from Kupai Cake. <laughs> so that's, that's one of the food memories. I remember eating, you know, incredible Virginia-style meals at my maternal grandmother's house in Plainfield, New Jersey. She was a minister's wife, but she would drop Parker House rolls on you in a heartbeat. She did canning, watermelon rind pickles, and pickled seckle pears, and of course, roasts of meat and things of that sort. On the other side of my family, the paternal side, my grandmother was more hard scrabble south, and so she could truly put a hurtin' on some greens. I remember when I was away at college, she would send these little funky um, mason jars full of greens to me that I received with great glee. So mm. those would be food memories from early years. I love greens. I have a fond memory of being invited to a friend's house and my boys just walking in and it was 
greens and sweet potato pie and roast chicken. And one of my boys must have asked for two or three helpings of greens, after which I was like, it goes from being flattering to being just rude. You have to stop at the third helping. Not really. (laughs) If there's enough, why not? I guess that's right. Was your mother cooking from a broad range of cuisines or was she also kind of drawing from that Southern style or Virginia style? Well, I think it was a range of things. I mean, certainly the Virginia style predominated in some cases, but she was also cooking for my father. So she learned to cook things like neck bones. And uh, my mother was somebody who never stopped growing Mm. in matters culinary. So that although she was born into that Virginia style, she kept adding things to her repertoire. And so one of my great, great pleasures in life, in my culinary life, is that I got my mother to learn to eat and use garlic because I grew up basically in a garlic-free household. And that was pretty much because African-Americans in my time period used garlic salt or garlic powder, not Mm -hmm. that much fresh garlic. And my father couldn't stand the smell of it, so I like to tell people I grew up in a garlic-free household. Well, now, you know, I'm perfectly happy to reek of garlic at any and all times. And I got my mother so she not only ate it, but actually enjoyed it. I love that. So you learn to cook at your mother's knee, so to speak, and then you meet Sam Floyd. He introduces you to literary figures who are at the height of their career or are soon to be Maya Angelou, James Baldwin, so many different people. And you start cooking for friends. What was that like? Were you a secure cook? Was food your entree in? Oh, gosh, no. No, no, no. I don't want to misrepresent those friendships. They became friendships, but the bottom line is I like to say that I was kind of the tail of the kite of their friendship with Sam. I was the tag along. Mm-hmm. I was not up in the middle of the mix. I was very definitely the tag along on that. As such, I entertained them occasionally. I remember having one or two things that Jimmy came to. I knew Maya for a much longer period of time, and the fact that I'm comfortable saying Maya as opposed to Dr. Angelou indicates that length of time. I cooked for and with her, but more toward the end of her life than during the period with Sam Floyd. At that point in time, I was kind of tagging along with Sam, usually with my mouth open in awe of the company I was with. Was it intimidating to cook for Jimmy Baldwin, for James Baldwin? I probably would have been intimidated, but The one thing that I did learn from Sam was put out your best, always serve your best, do the best you can, and then get on with it. I think that that's the important thing. I think we can get caught up in and stuck in some ways with the who's being served or the what am I going to do? And Mm -hmm. it's like sometimes simple is best. There's an anecdote in my soul looks back about my real young stupid culinary thing, which was one of Baldwin's friends was a lady named Mary Painter, and she was married to a two-star Michelin chef named Georges Garin. I love this story. Uh, Yeah, well, (laughs) it's quite the story. And Georges Garin was 
quite extraordinary, had a restaurant that was attended by the notables of uh, French government and cinema and everything else at that point in time. And, you know, I'm reciprocating because my mother raised me right. And if people take you out to lunch and dinner and things of that sort, then what you do is you reciprocate. And I certainly couldn't have taken them out to the kind of restaurants that they had taken me. So I cooked dinner. And I cooked one of my specialties from back then. And my specialty was a choucroute garni. Choucroute garni is an Alsatian dish. Uh, Alsace, Lorraine are the easternmost parts of France that border on Germany, and they have gone back and forth between being French and German for many years. But from Alsace, we get choucroute garni. From Lorraine, we get quiche Lorraine. But the choucroute garni is sauerkraut, and it's a sauerkraut dish that is often cooked in white wine because the Alsatian wines are quite lovely. And then garnished with all kinds of sausage and potatoes and occasionally, sometimes you'll find carrots Mm -hmm. and ham and occasionally a smoked pork chop, all sorts of pork products. Let's just leave it at that. And so at that point, I was doing my choucroute, which involved plopping a bag of unwashed or rinsed sauerkraut, so very sour sauerkraut, into a pot, putting in some washed uh, new potatoes, a couple of frankfurters, some streaky bacon, and a can of beer. And I cooked that up and in the, to paraphrase someone's book title, served it up proudly. And God bless him, Georges Garin ate it. I think may have even had seconds. God only knows how. And understood that I had done the best that I knew how to do. And bless his heart, and I'm actually tearing up about this, which is surprising, but the next time I saw him, Mm. he brought me a bottle of juniper berries. Mm. Now, where he'd found juniper berries in New York City is totally beyond me because we're talking the 1970s at this point. But he brought me some juniper berries and said, you might want to add some of these the next time. And that was all he said. I think you called that a gentle correction in the book or something. It was a very gentle correction, and I actually still have that jar of juniper berries that I keep in my kitchen to remind me to, A, be gentle with people who may not know what you know, but, B, remind me that I don't know all of that. (laughs) Well, you know enough to have written, what, a dozen books and counting. I know you're working on one now. I know every time I try to get you out, you say, I have a deadline I must meet. Well, I mean, I certainly have been known to hear them swooshing by. I am working on the cookbook. That's another way of looking at the food of the United States. And so it's going to be about the culinary heritage of the United States. So it it widens the lens a little bit from simply the African-American to look at the foundational food of this country. I certainly look forward to seeing that. But it's interesting because I've heard you say elsewhere that you don't cook with recipes per se, that it's funny that you develop them because as a cook, you're more of an intuitive cook. Absolutely. I despise recipes. In fact, I have always threatened to write a cookbook that would just list ingredients and talk in some way about the taste, about 
the way that it should come out and what it might look like at the end, what it might smell like, what it might taste like, and then let people decide on their own. I think one of the horrific things about 21st century food is that we are all chained to recipe, and I don't really believe that recipe always works. I mean, we have now developed this whole new set of people called recipe testers who test a recipe. But, you know, your kitchen, my kitchen, your oven, my oven, one of them has a hot spot. Right. I'm using one kind of salt. You're using another kind of salt. Does that work? I got this ingredient in a farmer's market. You got it in a little bodega around the corner. Does that work? Right. All of these things that we treat as absolutes that are very much variable. And we don't allow for the variation. And I think what it does is it gives younger people or maybe older people, but people who are coming into cooking a false sense of security. If I follow this recipe, it'll come out fine. And it's like, well, not really. But it also hobbles people because people who aren't perhaps used to cooking then don't experiment. I remember once I was making a coco vin. And I was following some extremely intricate recipe and was looking and it was like, oh, Lord, <laughs> I don't have any pearl onions. What am I going to do now? Panic. No, I didn't panic. <laughs> I used black eyed peas. It wasn't coco vin. It was something and it was good. Right. My whole thing is if you put together three things that you like, you're probably going to like it. So why worry? I mean, I think we have given a lot of young chefs and young people and young cooks, and I keep saying young because I guess I'm feeling a little elderly today, but a lot of agita for nothing. I mean, cook, for God's sakes. I think it's a little bit like when you're learning to dance, you follow the instructor's instructions in the beginning, and then at a certain point when you start improvising, you become the choreographer and not just the dancer. And I think recipes can be helpful while you're learning to cook, and then you have to let go. And to your point, integrate what's in your kitchen, integrate what flavor preferences you prefer, and have fun with it. You know, I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, and you also have to recognize that there is the the dancing around at the disco, and then there's ballet. They're two entirely different things. If you're doing ballet, you need to know for a second, third, fourth, fifth positions with all of the port de bras and all of the rest of it. If you're not, then you can just let it all hang out and do what the spirit moves you to do. And I think that there is room for each of those in cooking. I'm not saying recipe doesn't work at all. But I'm simply saying that I think we have become people who hew too closely to the idea of recipe. I love, as editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit, I love looking at the comment section of our recipes because that's where the interchange and free flow of ideas and information happens. You know, like I use paprika instead of oregano because I, I wanted a little color or, or something like that. It's fun to watch how people improvise. Absolutely. To your Absolutely. Effect. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back to Dawn's conversation with Dr. Jessica Harris, we'll hear about the ingredients in your pantry that you might not have known came from Africa. We'll touch on her recipe for red rice and her travel recommendations for Martha's Vineyard and New Orleans. We also want to note that our thoughts are with the people of New Orleans as they bring the city back after Hurricane Ida. It's been a terrible time, but hopefully this conversation inspires us to get back to the city very soon.
And we're back with Dawn's conversation with Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Tell me about your love of African food. Tell me about, (laughs) I know you talk a lot about okra. You wrote a piece for Bon Appetit, and we asked you to kind of identify some things that you associate with Black culinary history. Talk to us about other African ingredients that interest you, excite you. Oh, well, tis the season. Watermelon, Mm -hmm. certainly. I mean, and watermelon is a double-edged sword for African-Americans because we've been demonized certainly to horrific extents in imagery and diabolically kind of made pay in multiple ways for our connection to watermelons. But watermelons, which originate on the African continent, are wonderful and incredible in areas where there is water insecurity. Mm -hmm. And certainly for the enslaved in this hemisphere, Water insecurity was something that was just a part of daily life, pretty much. So the whole idea of watermelon being able to provide not only liquid, but liquid that had some degree of purity, liquid that provided vitamins, all of that made watermelon extremely valuable. And so demonizing folks for for something about which, A, they had little control, none in many cases, Mm -hmm. and B, then taking it well into the 21st century. There have been debates online as recently as last month about watermelons and what that means and how so many African Americans have internalized Mm -hmm. that awfulness about watermelon and the images with which we were portrayed with it. I look at watermelon in a very different light. I certainly think of the history of it. I think of its value. So there's all of that. So watermelon, mama watermelon needs to be respected. Yes, she does. Super hydrating, super healthy. Yeah. Black-eyed peas, those black-eyed peas that I put into that coco van all of those years ago. Little did I know that field peas were African in origin, so those would certainly come as a part of it. Certainly some forms of sesame, I didn't know that. Mm. When I was teaching, I would get up, I would allow myself two cups of coffee. We don't think of coffee as having an African origin, Ethiopian highlands, so that there are all of those things that we don't think about, but that we probably eat or consume multiple times a week, if not multiple times a day. I have to investigate more into sesame. That I was not familiar with. So, Jessica, while you don't necessarily love cooking with recipes, you do develop them, and you've developed one called Jessica Harris's Red Rice Recipe. Talk to me about its connection to Africa. Well, I think there are a variety of things that happen. First of all, red rice is something that is eaten by the Gullah Geechee people of Charleston, or the Low Country area. The idea of Charleston red rice is important because it is one of those foods that I think of as a connector food. Mm -hmm. I had never been to Charleston. I'd always known I wanted to go to and know Charleston. So when I got as close as Columbia, it's like, I got to get to Charleston. Right. And as you know, and I think an increasing number of people know, (laughs) I am a non-driver. So my getting to Charleston involved my... You had to plot and figure out a way. Exactly. I had to enlist others in my escapade. 
love it. And so we, you know, ordered off of the, from the menu of this little restaurant. And it was like, what do you want? And I was like, we'll have this, that, or the other. And what will you have with it? You can have white rice or, or red rice. or It's Charleston. So they offered a sort of a starch rice menu. Not even starch. It was it rice, was rice, or rice. Which rice. kind of rice would you like? Love that. And we had all said we would have red rice. Well, the meal comes, and we look down at our plates, look up at each other, and almost simultaneously say, Chebujen. What does that mean for, for those of us? Okay, for those of you who are nuts, old Senegal hands, Chebujen is the national dish of Senegal. Aha. It is a red rice that is, at this point, made red with tomato paste. It has various kinds of fish that is usually in steaks. The steaks are scored and they have a wonderful garlic parsley mix tucked into the score. So it's very, very flavorful. Mm. That's cooked. There are little eggplants, carrots, bell peppers sometimes, a variety of onions, of vegetables that are cooked in this rice along with the fish. And the rice is red in the exact same way that red rice is red. So you all saw it and saw an instant connection. Oh, no, we all saw and in some ways tasted because that rice and tomato mm. combination sort of ran around the palate in a way that made you think, hmm, I've had this before. Hmm, wait a minute now, what is the connection? What other connector foods? You said it was one of the connector foods. What is another connector food? Well, like certainly a sauce gombo, uh, uh, an okra sauce or a sauce feuille, a leaf sauce, those kinds of things. The sauce gombo, just the word gombo tells you something about the connections. Sure. It means okra in French is gombo. And so a sauce gombo would be an okra sauce. Some of them can be gluey to extreme, so they look very shall we say, to the North American palate when you can take a thread of okra and pull it out from your plate and it'll almost snap back. People are like, mm, maybe not. But it's okra using all of its mucilaginous qualities and properties. There's also a sauce feuille, which would be a leaf sauce, which is various greens mm. that are cooked long, low, and slow with the addition often of fish and occasionally of meat of some sort. And so those three things certainly will connect us to foods of the African diaspora and specifically foods of the United States. You have a place in Brooklyn. You have traveled a lot in Paris. And you have a house in New Orleans as well. So I have to ask you about food in these places. Oh, goodness. Um, first of all, let me, before everybody goes, oh, she must be living the good life, three houses. <laughs> okay. Let me talk about the three mortgages. There is work, blood, sweat, tears, and a lot of midnight, oh, my God, how is that bill going to get paid involved in that? So that being said, Food in Martha's Vineyard. I am, as I tell people sometimes, useless <laughs> culinarily on the vineyard and in New Orleans because I'm allergic to shellfish. And actually, it's a strange thing because it's something that I share with Maya Angelou, who was allergic to fish, period, all fish. 
she couldn't eat Worcestershire sauce because of the anchovies. That being said, I can, for some reason, and I'm not going to question it, able to eat scallops. Oh. Or as they say up here, scallops. 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 And I love them. I love particularly the little bay scallops that I can eat raw. And they are sweet. They are just slightly taste of, it's sort of like the ocean and seaweed and sugar all together. So with that, I love the idea of a scallop crudo of some sort. I am right now enjoying the sort of Asian tastes of soy and sesame and ginger. Mm. So that's something that, that I certainly like and can eat and will eat up here. And what about New Orleans? I love to travel to New Orleans for food. I come up with any excuse. For New Orleans, I would go to any conference for any reason just to go out and eat. I am I'm kind of a classicist in New Orleans, but I had a house account at Galatoire's, which is something that people will raise eyebrows about because I'm sure I was one of very, very few, if not the only African-American who had a house account at Galatoire's because in the bad old days, one couldn't eat there. Mm. But I got to New Orleans after the bad old days, and it was a way of um, staking a claim and making a point. Mm. But I also eat at Upper Line. Upper Line was extraordinary. Joanne Clevenger is one of the legendary restaurateurs of the city. I love Bayona. Susan Spicer and what Susan Spicer does at Bayona is quite amazing. Delicious. There is a new place on, um, I think it's Charter Street called Justine's. My stomach's beginning to growl, <laughs> so there you go. Um, that is really kind of classic French. So when I want to pretend I'm eating in a bistro in France, I head there. Nina Compton and Compère Lapin sure. is wonderful, but I tend to go to a Bywater American Bistro because I can walk there sure. and have brunches. Her brunches are amazing, and she's got a kind of full New Orleans breakfast that's almost her take on a full English breakfast that comes complete with the baked beans. But I think one of the places that I am most often at is a place called N7. And it is on Montague Street in the Bywater. Mm -hmm. And you have to kind of almost know where it is to get there. But Aaron Walker and, uh, and Yuki, because they're husband and wife, it is French food, but sort of inflected by Japanese sensibility and tastes. And it is totally Yuki's invention, and it is just amazing. So that's a place that you will find me often sitting inside or out, eating whatever they send out. I have to ask, did you go to New Orleans because of a love of food, because of a love of uh, the, the kind of influence... Actually, no, I French went to culture? New Orleans because New Orleans is the linchpin place for African culture in this hemisphere. It is culturally, if you begin to think about New Orleans, and this again is probably another podcast, 
But if you begin to think of New Orleans, it is the northernmost point in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. The people were French, then Spanish, then French. Most people forget that New Orleans was Spanish for almost as long as it was French. And a lot of the things that we attribute to the French, like the French Quarter, mm. are actually Spanish. Um, so that you get a lot of the connecting things. You get connections with Haiti. You get connections with Cuba. You get to see connections as that whole African Atlantic world morphs and moves and changes. So New Orleans has a lot of things going on for it and in it that you don't see other places in the South. I tend to like places that are creolized. I like places that are about the mixing of cultures. I love that. So if High on the Hog sells and sells, and your next book sells and sells, and you were to get another place, where would it be? It would be an airplane so I could get back and forth between the places that I do love. <laughs> you would get a plane. I'd get a plane. Fair and, enough. And a pilot, since I don't drive. Yes, but you, you, you do fly in, in mighty high places, in, uh, literally and figuratively. I don't know about that. That's, that's another story. Dr. Harris, thank you so much for being our guest on Food People. I genuinely enjoyed talking to you. I always learn so much from you. I could listen to you talk all day, and it's just an honor to be in your company. Oh, God, get over that. Well, thank you very much, and hopefully the next time we see each other, you'll be back to calling me Jessica again. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Jessica B. Harris, for joining the podcast today, and to Don Davis for stepping in. Please do yourself a favor and order one of Jessica's books and follow her on Instagram at Dr. Jessica B. Harris. You can also read more from Jessica on bonappetit.com or just click the link in our show notes. If you love the show, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps keep us food people employed. And you can follow Bon Appetit on Instagram at Bon Appetit Mag and on Twitter at Bon Appetit. Food People is produced by Bon Appetit in partnership with Pod People. Vishnu Vallabhaneni is our senior producer. Ginny Bloom is our showrunner. Madison Lusby is our production manager. And Morgan Foos and Jessica Jones are our associate producers. This episode was engineered by Trey Booty. And the music is by DJ Newmark. June Kim and I provide editorial direction for the series. Special thanks to Matt Sav, Nico Steele, and Julie Shen. I'm your host, Amanda Shapiro, and I'll see you next week. Music